events, about things that God wants us to know about the future. And so uh, we're studying them along with some other passages in the scriptures uh, where God reveals to us what's going to happen about when the Lord returns and uh, what our role as Christians and uh, how to be faithful in the midst of all that's going to happen surrounding Jesus' uh, return. And you might remember that when Paul started this church in Acts chapter 17, you can read about it, but when Paul started this church, he got thrown out of town. And so uh, according to Acts 17, we're not really exactly sure, but it seems like he was only there for like three weeks. And, uh, and then, um, so Paul is thrown out of town, and uh, Paul is dying to know how this church is doing. Like, he's away from them. He's only been there a short period of time. And uh, he's just yearning to know, like, you know, was their faith real? Uh, will their faith stand up in the face of opposition? Or was their faith just some emotional, psychological response to his being there and uh, in the face of the uh, tension that was happening and the opposition that was happening and so forth? Uh, would their faith really cave in? And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the first few verses there, uh, Paul says this. He says, therefore, you know, when we could bear it no longer, I just couldn't stand wondering how you guys were doing. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, Paul says. And he sends Timothy, uh, verse 2, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, uh, to establish and to exhort you in your faith. Um, that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul was really worried, like, what are these young Christians going to do in the face of opposition? Uh, That you wouldn't be moved by your afflictions, uh, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. If you're going to live for the Lord, you're going to know, you ought to know that the world is going to come against you, right? It's not neutral ground that we're living in. Uh, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, when I just couldn't stand it anymore, right, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, the enemy, Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul's like, you know, we went there and we shared the gospel and you people embraced Jesus. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering now that we've been away from you for a while, how are you doing? How's this church really making out and so when Timothy returns uh, after he'd been there for a while you notice there's three things they wanted Timothy to do to um, establish those people get them established in their faith we're not sure how how long Timothy stayed there but his job was to get them established in their faith this wasn't just kind of a willy-nilly emotional response a one-time kind of thing but get established understand you know uh, what you've just bought into in believing in Christ and exhort people to, like, move on. Let's, let's you know, the, uh, once you are established in the faith and you understand what God is saying to you, then uh, be exhorted, Timothy, exhort these people to do, you know, what uh, God says. And then the third thing, uh, uh, we're sending Timothy there to learn about how you're doing so he could come back. And so in verse 6, it says, uh, Timothy comes back and Paul is greatly encouraged. But now that Timothy has come to us, Paul is writing back to them, now that Timothy's come back from you, and he has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us like we long to see you, 
For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. Paul's like, ah, such good news to hear from Timothy that you people are strong in your faith and that you're increasing in your love. And Paul is greatly encouraged. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, for now we live. Now we live, right? He's like, I'm so excited. If you're standing fast in the Lord, man, that's life for me. And uh, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. So Paul's really encouraged. They're standing strong. They're increasing in their love. The church is moving forward and so forth. But Paul realizes that they're still lacking some things in their faith. And when you read through First and Second Thessalonians, you realize that what they're lacking in their faith is an understanding of what God's revealed about the future. And I'm so glad that they were lacking that because that's why we have these letters. And that's uh, what I think enables us as well uh, to make sure that there's nothing lacking in our faith about the future. Because here's the deal. Faith is never static. Faith is either growing or dying, right? Your faith is either increasing or decreasing. Faith is not a static thing. Your faith in God and your relationship with God is either on the increase and it's becoming more and more significant to you in life, or it's waning and it's decreasing and it's becoming less and less significant. And so what was lacking was confusion about Jesus' return. And uh, as a result of that, not being clear about the future, uh, there was a loss of some zeal and some passion. Uh, In chapter 4, Paul writes to them and he says, Finally, brothers, you know, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That you haven't, you know, you haven't arrived. Uh, Paul is like recognizing that because, you know, when you don't know the future and you're not confident in the future, it, it robs some motivation and some um, passion and some zeal. He says the same thing in the, uh, verse 10. You'll notice he says, you know, uh, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, do this, but do it more and more. Like, come on, let's step it up a notch. Let's get to the next level. Uh, do this. Uh, Paul is, remember in chapter 2, he said he's acting like a nursing mother and like a compassionate father. And so Paul's like complimenting these people, saying, oh, you're doing well and you're doing what God wants you to do, but come on, man, do it more. Step it up. Like, get to the next level. And that's what he's saying here. And I'd like you to notice something uh, in this book of 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter in this book ends with a reference to the Lord's return. Every practical thing that Paul wants to say to this church He ties to the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I think what a lack of motivation comes if we're not clear, if we're confused about the return of Jesus. And so in chapter 1, for example, if you look in chapter 1, the second part of verse 9 and verse 10 says this. He says, how you people turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. 
These people had a sense of expectation. They were waiting for something to happen in the future. They were waiting for Jesus to come back, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that's going to come. There's going to be a time. You know, people always ask this. Well, if God is so great and God is so caring and God is so powerful, why does he do something about all the evil in the world? He's going to, and he has. He sent Jesus to deliver us from it, right? And he's going to. You read the book of Revelation, and you'll see about the wrath that God's going to come against the whole world, all the evil and wickedness in the world, and everything's going to be destroyed. You better be thankful that he hasn't reached that day yet, that there's time for people to be reconciled to him through Christ. But my point here is that at the end of chapter 1, there's a reference to waiting for the coming of the Lord and and realizing that we're going to be delivered from the wrath to come. Look at the end of chapter um, 2. In uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 13, uh, notice what it says. Uh, We thank God constantly uh, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us and accepted it as the word of God, not as the word of men, and then go all the way down to verse uh, 19, For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul's like, what am I going to offer to the Lord when I meet him face to face? And then look what he says. Is it not you? Paul's like, I'm dying to know how you're doing because when the Lord comes back, you know, I'm going to point to you as the product of my work. And if you are failing, then I'm a failure and my work was in vain. And what am I going to say to the Lord? Now, we're all involved in ministry of some sort. And it behooves us, you know, like Paul to say, you know, I have to say, is is that really working? Is it fruitful? Am I investing my life and my ministry in a way that is causing people to grow and to mature? But again, the end of the second chapter, it's about the Lord coming back. End of the third chapter, uh, verse 12. Um, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for everybody, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's like, why should you step it up and be more loving? Why should you love each other and other people more than you do now? Well, so that at his coming, we may be blameless and holy. We may be what Jesus died to create us to be, you know. But again, he's got this expectation. Chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord and therefore encourage each other with these words. Every chapter, Paul ends with a reference to the coming of Jesus. It's the motivation. And if we don't have it clear, if we, aren't, if we don't understand, like this church, uh, if we're confused about the return, we're, uh, the motivation for our living in the present is robbed from us. Uh, look at the last chapter, chapter 5, uh, verse 23. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should our spirit, our soul, and our bodies be surrendered to the Lord? Why should we surrender all, as we just sang? Well, so that when the Lord comes, we'll be blameless. We'll be holy. 
will be what Jesus died to create us to be. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference. All the practical advice that Paul is saying to this church is tied to the second coming of Christ. And so when we as believers sort of ignore the second coming or we think, oh, it's too confusing to understand or we don't put the effort forth uh, to figure out what God is revealing to us prophetically, uh, we lose the motivation. It's so important to have an understanding of what God wants us to know about the future. And uh, we need to know it at the very core of our being, you know, that Jesus is, in fact, coming back. Uh, Jesus himself in um, Matthew, in Matthew 24 and 25, but in Matthew 24 uh, in particular, in verse 35, Jesus said this, listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So when Jesus says he's coming back, this isn't something like, well, you know, maybe that's going to happen, maybe not. It's been a long time, a couple thousand years since he said that, and and maybe it's, you know, not really ever going to come about and so forth. No, heaven and earth will pass away uh, before his word uh, will stop. In Psalm 138 in the Old Testament, um, in the second verse, uh, the psalmist says, you know, I bow down to your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then He says this, for you have exalted, okay, above everything else, your name and your word. There are two things that are more important than anything else. God has exalted his name and his word, and they're like two sides of the same coin. If God's word is not true, God's character can't be trusted. I don't know if you realize this, but even us as individuals... If you don't keep your word, if you say something and don't do it, what happens? Well, people begin not to trust you. People begin to say, well, yeah, they say they'll be there, but they don't show up. Or they say they're going to do this, and they don't do it. Or they say they're serious, but they're not serious. And, and eventually, in a marriage or in a relationship or in a church or in, in a committee or in any kind of a setting, you know, your word and your name go together. And God says, above everything else, my name and my word I exalt. And so when God gives us his word, um, it's really uh, something that I think is very significant. There are two sides of the same uh, coin. If God's word is not true, his character can't be trusted. And if God's character can't be trusted, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. And so above everything else. So Jesus is coming back. You can bet your life on it. There's no force in the universe that can stop him uh, from coming back. And um, not only that, but um, we have to ask the question, how does the fact that Jesus is coming back affect the way we live today? What difference does it make that we understand that Jesus is coming back? Just think about how different life would be if we knew the future. If you knew that there was going to be a terrorist attack in London this past week, right? You would have changed your vacation plans. True? If you knew that the stock market was going to crash next month, right? If you knew that your spouse was going to divorce you two years from now, you'd probably change. You'd probably say, I don't really want that, and so what do I have to do? you know, to occupy the role that God has given me better, you know. Um, 
Just think about how different life would be if we knew the future. Uh, if, if you knew, you know, that uh, on Friday you were going to inherit $20 million, <laughs> your life would be different today, right? Well, the one thing God really wants us to know is that Jesus is coming back. But the question is, what difference does that make in our everyday living? God wants us to know the truth about the future, and especially our future with him. The Lord of the universe, the creator, the savior of the world, God's only begotten son, the one who was already here once and changed the world, uh, the one around whom history revolves, the one who redefined what time is, everything before him and everything after him, B.C. and A.D., you know, that Jesus is coming again. The one that we've gathered here to worship this morning, that Jesus is coming again. And this time, when he comes, he's not coming to be a sacrifice, but to be a king. To be, in fact, the king of kings. To rule the world, the millennial kingdom of God. And what a difference uh, that will be in the world. When he came the first time, he came riding on a donkey. When he comes back, Revelation tells us he'll be on a stallion, a white stallion. Um, When he came the first time, he came as a lamb. And the Bible says he was silent. He was silent as a lamb before uh, his accusers. He opened not his mouth. But when he comes back, the Bible says he's coming as a lion, not a lamb. And Joel tells us that he's coming back as a roaring lion, right? That his voice will be heard all around the world. The first time when he came, he was judged. When he comes back, he's the judge. He will be the judge. When he came the first time, he came in humility. When he returns, he's coming in glory. He came the first time to die, but he's coming back to reign over the whole world. Jesus, uh, who we saw, was rejected, right, by the overwhelming majority of his own people. Their hearts were hardened, and they chose to hold on to their traditions and their past more than to God and his future and the future that he sought to um, reveal. When Jesus comes back, all of Israel will recognize who he is. And all of Israel will repent in mourning. And all of Israel will be uh, forgiven and cleansed, the scriptures say. And Israel, that day, will become a Christian nation. And all the world will notice. And uh, Jesus' true identity will be vindicated among his own people. And the curse that was imposed on mankind in the Garden of Eden will be lifted and Satan will be defeated and neutralized and God's glory will be on display all over the world. All of nature is waiting for the return of Jesus. You remember uh, Paul's words in uh, Romans where he talks about this uh, in Romans chapter 8. He says in uh, verse 16, you know, I consider that the, uh, or 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's to come. For the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a great day. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation is waiting uh, for the Lord's return. 
Everything is waiting for his return. In Isaiah, you remember in Isaiah chapter 11, we have a picture of what it's going to be like and how different it's going to be when the Lord comes. In verses 6 and 7, the, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and so on and so forth. And here's all of this uh, nature just released from uh, everything that was subjected to all the way from uh, the Garden of Eden. And you know, this is our hope, right? This is what we're waiting for. This is what we believers are anticipating and knowing and what motivates our everyday living. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about the hope that we have in Christ. Titus calls it the blessed hope of every believer. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who have an anticipation of the return of Christ. He'll come to save. And so we know for sure that Jesus is coming. But here's the question. What difference does it make in our living today? And uh, Peter, I think, talks about this and poses the question. Um, here's what he says in uh, where am I? 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Right? Same thing Paul said to the Thessalonian uh, the Thessalonians about those who didn't know Christ. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the question, what sort of people ought we to be? That's the question. What sort, since we know what's coming, since we know what's going to happen to this earth and, and, and so forth, and since we know that the kingdom of God is coming with the presence of Jesus, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and so on and so forth? What kind of people should we be in light of the fact that God has revealed what the future is? What a privilege to know the future. What a great privilege it is to know what's coming. And uh, we know for sure that Jesus is coming back and that there will be uh, these events that surround his coming. Paul was so concerned about these Christians in Thessalonica that they might be compromising Christians. That they might have forgotten about what God has promised about the future and that that motivation might have left them and that their faith might have been compromised. And so he sends Timothy uh, because, again, faith is either increasing or decreasing in our lives. And Paul had to know, you know, lest he uh, had uh, spent his time in vain. And when we know what's going to happen, uh, we can be prepared. And next week I plan to talk about the timing from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and some of the things that God reveals in more detail. But for this morning, I think it's really important to understand uh, what God has revealed before these events happen. Um, a little saying that I like to say is uh, you cannot put your seatbelt on when the accident is happening. True? And you cannot be ready for all the events that God says are going to happen if we wait 
until they happen. And I meet a lot of Christians and they say, well, you know, I'm not sure, I don't understand, and so I'm just kind of, I'm going to wait. And once I get in the middle of it, then I'll, you know, figure out what to do. And I want to say, you know, by then it'll be too late. By then it'll be uh, too late. The book of Revelation is all about the return of Jesus. And um, when you think about uh, the Lord coming back and what he's uh, allowed us to know, that he wants us to know, um, and you turn to the book of Revelation, we have some detail about what to expect. And so for, in, in Revelation chapter 1, if you're not familiar, um, you'll just notice that this, this is what this is all about. The first couple of verses, the revelation of Jesus Christ, revelation is a revelation of Jesus, okay, which God gave him to show to his servants. Uh, the book of Revelation is written to his servants, to his people, to us. And uh, the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. John penned the book of Revelation. uh, Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. uh, Even to all that he saw. Now blessed is the person who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. It's about what's happening in the future. Okay. And blessed are those who hear. And who keep what's written in it for the time is near. And then verse 7. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Remember we saw that prophecy back in Zechariah. All the Jewish people. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The book of Revelation is about the return of Jesus. And at the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself says here, he testifies to these things and says, surely I am coming soon. Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And uh, the book of Revelation is all about uh, the return of Jesus from beginning to end when we look at it here. And that's what it's really all about. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, um, we read these words. Um, uh, John is talking here, and he's saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, and here's Jesus talking, uh, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. The book of Revelation was written for the church. Write down what you see and hear and send it to the seven churches. And again, if we go to the very last chapter of uh, the book of Revelation, Jesus again talks, and in verse 16, Jesus says, "Um, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. For the churches. This is special message from God through Jesus, through an angel, through John, to us, the church, right? And uh, he says, for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. All that to say that the book of Revelation was written for us and for the church. It was written to the people of God about Jesus' return. And so in chapters 2 and 3, if you're familiar, uh, there's a message for seven churches uh, that Jesus delivers and that John writes down. Uh, And these seven churches were in existence at the time that Revelation was written, located in what today we call Turkey. 
And so what Jesus says is relevant to that church back then, but it's also prophecy about the church at the time of Jesus' return. Uh, If you're familiar with prophecy, you know that prophecy most often has a near and a far application. It talks about a situation within the context of people's lifetimes, but also is a revelation of what's to come in the future. And these messages to the seven churches were written to seven real churches who had these real situations, but also uh, they speak of what the church is going to be like right before the Lord returns. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. And uh, so when we read these seven churches, the message of God to these seven churches, it's really a mixed bag. And uh, it's really interesting to kind of put these churches on some kind of a scale. And I would say to you that the best church, the best church uh, was the church at Philadelphia. It's the only church that Jesus doesn't have something negative to say about. And so in Revelation chapter 3, we read about his message to the church at Philadelphia. And again, I would suggest to you that this is the best church. Jesus says only good things to them. And notice what he says in verses um, 8 and 9. He says, I know your works, Jesus said. And in fact, he says this to most of the churches. I know your works. And I don't know about you, but uh, I find a great deal of comfort in that. Because sometimes we say, you know, I'm serving the Lord. I'm working so hard. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. Nobody says thank you. I feel like I'm just a small thing, not noticed, and I'm trying to serve God and uh, use my gifts and, you know, give myself to ministry and sacrifice my time and my resources and so forth. And sometimes you serve God and you say, you know what, nobody notices. But I'm telling you, Jesus knows our works. He looks at the church and uh, he says, you know, I know your works. And really what we believe really always comes out in what we do. True? Whatever we believe is what we act on. And so Jesus looks to our works, and he says, I know your works. Uh, Behold, I've set before you an open door. Jesus is like, you know, to this church at Philadelphia, there's an open door, and nobody can close it. There is opportunity for ministry. There is opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. I, Jesus, Lord of the church, have opened the door, and there's plenty for you to do, right? And nobody can shut it. And then he says this, I know that you have but little power. I know that you don't have a lot of worldly clout. I know that you don't have a lot of money. I know that you don't have a lot of whatever, you know, the world, a lot of worldly power and so forth. I know that you just have a little power, and yet you have kept my word. You have kept my word, right? And you've not denied my name. The two things that mean the most to God. My word and my name, which go together, which I elevate above everything else. This church said, no matter what, I'm not going to compromise on your word, and I'm never going to deny your name. And and this is the, I I say this is the best of the seven churches. And uh, he goes on and he says, you know, uh, I know you have some opposition. I know you have some, behold, I... uh, Uh, Make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There's a day coming, there's a day coming when your enemies will bow at your feet and acknowledge that you were right and I was wrong, 
and uh, so on. And then he says this, and this is the verse. um, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There's a horrible period of time coming right before Jesus comes back that will be a a trial to the whole world, Uh, a, a time of testing, right? I will keep you from that hour, Jesus says, to this church, to the faithful church. Uh, Now, I think this is huge. Um, If you go to Revelation chapter 14, um, I think most people agree that what he's talking about is what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation, which is the period of time that begins right in the very middle of the last seven years that the Bible talks about uh, surrounding Jesus' return. And um, chapter 14 of Revelation says, you know, that there will be this antichrist, the Bible calls, this world leader who will demand the worship of everybody and try to eliminate anybody who doesn't worship him, right? This world leader. And uh, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 14, uh, three angels come to warn people at the time about what's happening. And the third angel in verse 9 follows the other two and says in a loud voice, If anybody worships the beast, the Antichrist is also called the beast. If anybody worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then here's the verse. Here is a call for endurance of the saints. Here's the call for endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So we're coming a time of testing upon the whole earth, And uh, the promise to this good church, the church at Philadelphia, is that for those who keep that patient endurance during that time of testing, uh, that God will protect them. And uh, this is really a a significant um, promise. Um, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. There is a way... To escape this disastrous period of time that's coming upon the world. I think that Jesus also talked about this in um, Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is talking about end time events. Kind of exciting passage and so forth. But when he gets through talking about it in verse 34, uh, he gives a warning to people who are listening to what he says about what's coming in the future. And Jesus says this. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, that this day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have 
the strength to escape. There is going to be a way to escape this great tribulation, that you will have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The faithful church will find a way uh, to be protected by God. It seems to be the promise here of both uh, Jesus in the book of Revelation as well as um, here in Luke's gospel, uh, whereby we will be protected. The faithful church will escape and be protected this, from this hour of testing uh, that will come upon the whole world. And again, most people agree that this is the period that Jesus calls the great tribulation, this period of the Antichrist, um, where he seeks to reign over the entire world, which Jesus says, I think in Matthew chapter 24, will be cut short by the Lord's return. And uh, if that period of time had gone on, uh, there would be no believers left on the face of the earth. That's how intense uh, it would be. And so, uh, again, I just say this, that perseverance, right, is the key. And that what this church in Philadelphia had going for it is that they held on to the name and to the word of God as their lifeline and uh, as their hope. And as a result of that, uh, this church was protected from uh, that period of time that's coming upon the whole earth. Opposite of the best church of these seven churches is the worst church. Okay, And uh, I would suggest to you that the worst church, and you can read this and evaluate for yourself, but uh, the church at Sardis uh, has nothing good that the Lord says about it. And uh, the Lord calls it a dead church. There's a few believers there, uh, but the church is dead. And so, uh, again, in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Sardis, the angel of the church at Sardis writes the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And here's the first thing Jesus says to this church, I know your works. I know your works. Now, he says the same thing to the best church as he says to the worst church, I know your works. I know what you're doing. Okay? And he notices not just what we do when we serve him, but when we don't. I know your works. And here's what he says. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation. In the past, you were a great church. You were an alive church. It's what Paul was worried about the Thessalonians. Wow, when I left, it seemed like this church was alive. But now that I've been gone for a while, I wonder what's really going on. And uh, he says, you know, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. And you're trying to live off your reputation. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're not done. You can't just lay down and say, we were a great church. And we did our thing in the past. You know, and I think about this. um, How often do we depend on the past? And, um, you know, uh, I think it's a problem when we try to lean on our reputation. Nobody can really live off the past. Uh, One of my favorite verses uh, back in uh, Philippians, the Apostle Paul uh, says this um, in in Philippians chapter 3 and and verse 13. He says, this one thing I do, Paul says, the great Apostle Paul, this one thing I do. What's, What's the one thing you do, Paul? This one thing I do, 
forget what lies behind. Forget about it, right? And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If that's the past, right, and that's the future, Paul says, look, here's the one thing I do. I don't live my life like this. You ever go to Elam Park and have a conversation and see how many people are talking about the past as opposed to turning around and start talking about the future? This one thing I do, I do not live my life like this. I have turned around and I am after to grab a hold of the reason for which God grabbed a hold of me, and that's the future. And I challenge you this morning to just ask yourself, how much of your life are you living in the past? And how much of what we talk about and what we're focused on, and what would happen if you actually turned around and said, you know what, I'm going to focus on the future. Because you know what, Uh, this passage, uh, I think it's in here, talks about that's what maturity is. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief, and you're not going to know at what hour I'm going to come against you. Yet you still have a, na- a couple of names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Uh, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. By the way, that's what the Lord says to all these churches. Whoever has an ear to hear what I'm saying, let him listen. Let him hear um, what I'm really saying. And so, you know, as we mature, we need to put our focus on the future. And we need to recognize that God has provided for us a future that he's not provided for everybody. And so uh, uh, Jesus says to this church, listen, Remember what you have. You have the gospel. Think about what I've entrusted to you. Remember the gospel. Remember, you know, what you have. The living word of God. Forget the past. Uh, Keep the word. Repent. Turn around. Stop facing the past and face the future. Or otherwise, the day of the Lord will come upon you like a thief. You'll be clueless. Remember, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he said, you know, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And then he says, that's, we're talking about the world, but then he says, not, that's not going to happen to you. The day of the Lord's not going to come like a thief in the night. You're in the day. You're in the light. You have my word. You know what's going to happen before the day of the Lord comes. You're going to be aware, and you're going to be alert. You're going to be waiting for it. You're going to be looking for it. You're going to be wishing for it. You're going to be looking forward to the future. The day of the Lord will not be a surprise to those who are focused on the future. And uh, so there'll be two kinds of people, you know, on that day when the Lord comes back. There'll be those who are clueless and who think the world's just going to keep going like it's always gone. And then there will be those who elevate the word of God and the name of God above everything else and who trusted God and who uh, wanted to know what does God have to say about when Jesus comes back. Two kinds of people. Uh, Jesus himself said it'll be just like it was in the days of Noah. Do you remember what it was like in the days of Noah? The majority of people were about to be destroyed, but they had no clue, and they refused to listen. 
But Noah elevated the word of God and the name of God and believed God. And uh, over the course of many years, built the ark. And he and his family, you know, went into the ark and were saved. And Jesus said, the day of my return will be just like it was in the days of Noah. Most, for most people, it will come like a thief in the night. Uh, but for you, it will not be like that. If we don't know what God says about the Antichrist, about taking the mark of his, uh, you know, his mark on our foreheads or our hands and so forth, uh, then we will not persevere. We won't say, oh, this is what Jesus warned us about. This is what he told us about. And uh, a few people uh, who were living and going to that church in Sardis uh, were people who believed, but it was the church itself uh, had died, kind of like Israel. There were people who trusted Christ, but the nation itself uh, rejected him. And then I think you can, we don't have time to go through each one of these churches, but you could take each of the other five churches. If you put, uh, you know, the church at Philadelphia as the best church and you put the church of Sardis as the worst church, you could take the other five and you can put them on a scale uh, uh, by their degree of compromise uh, between the best church and the worst church. And Jesus gives us the condition. You might want to just read through these seven churches and think about uh, the condition of the church even today as we know it. And uh, be encouraged that God has revealed to us what it's going to be like and what to expect. And uh, that we have this great hope, this blessed hope of Jesus coming back and the kingdom of God being initiated and us being a part of it. Uh, We'll talk more about that uh, next week, Lord willing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, it's such a great thing that you are willing to reveal to us what we can expect in the future, what we can count on, what we can know. And it's not everything, but we trust you that what you want us to know, you've written in your word. And, uh, and may that suffice for us. May we not have this desire to know more than you've revealed, but may we certainly not ignore what you want us to know about the future so that we can be prepared. And uh, so, Heavenly Father, that we can bring glory to you. And so I pray that as we continue to study through the Thessalonian letters, uh, that you'll reveal to us in, in uh, clear and uh, not confusing, but uh, convincing ways uh, what the truth really is and how we need to be prepared. And that we would ask that question in light of these things, Father, that, like Peter did, what kind of people ought we to be? And that we would have a desire and a yearning and a power to be, in fact, those kind of people. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.